today are award-winning director and producers whose documentary, Better This World, tells the story of David Crow David Brad Crowder and David McKay. McKay and Crowder are are, were arrested and charged in connection to domestic terrorism charges while demonstrating at the 2008 Republican National Con Convention and tells the story of the, the wild lead, lead up and aftermath of, of these demonstrations. The film has won Best Documentary Feature at San Francisco International Film Festival and Sarasota Film Festival and has played at Hot Docs, Full Frame, Silver Docks, South by Southwest, and is currently playing at DocuWeeks in New York and L.A., and will be broadcasting on the PBS program POV in the fall. Welcome Katie Galloway and Kelly Dwayne De La Vega. Thank you. Now, to start off, what, what was the genesis of this film? How did this film start with the two of you? So in early 2009, we saw an article in the New York Times that was um, dealing with the controversy around the arrest of two young men from Midland, Texas, uh, David McKay and Bradley Crowder, who were 22 and 23 at the time, and they had been arrested and charged with domestic terrorism at the 2008 Republican National Convention. And in early January, um, Bradley Crowder had already taken a plea, but David McKay was taking the case to trial, and as is often the case in these domestic terrorism uh, cases since 9-11, there was an allegation from the defense of entrapment by the government. So we thought that this would be an, a, a great opportunity following his trial to take a look behind the headlines at one of these domestic terrorism cases that we've seen so many of. One of the things I was really amazed with the film was how much material you had, audio, video, text messages, uh, testimony and whatnot. And I was just curious, like, how did you get, how did you get all of this footage and, and what was it like assembling it all? You know, it was, we put a lot of research into getting as many materials as we could, um, partially because that's what you do as journalists and also because many of the interesting facts that took place during, um, or were that that were central to our narrative, took place prior to the time we got involved with the filmmaking. We followed, you know, from David McKay's trial on forward, but there was a really rich and interesting mystery that uh, transpired before we got before we started filming. So we started looking everywhere for footage, um, and we found out that the Homeland Security. Um, gave a grant of $1.2 million, yeah. $1 million to the Twin Cities for cameras. And so they, we, they shot almost everybody who entered the Twin Cities during the Republican National Convention. We were able to access that footage through um, the Minneapolis police. And so that was something we brought in. And then we looked at everything that was brought in um, to David McKay's trial jailhouse phone calls, text messages, lots of FBI surveillance, photos and footage, letters to the FBI, right, from the informant in the case. So there was just, there were a lot of different pieces that were a part of discovery at, at trial. So we were, we were lucky in that way. We also um, 
were able to tap into a whole network of people who had been filming uh, during the RNC, mainly protesters who um, had filmed everything from preparation. There were a lot of arrests prior to the RNC and the days leading up to it, um, sort of disruption mode of police, and then also just on the ground uh, clashes between protesters and police. So we were able to get a lot of that footage. Mm. I have to say, too, one of the things I do love about the film is the title, because I feel like it, is, it, it, it just sets the tone and kind of underscores the whole thing. And it is like kind of a constant question of bettering this world. These these guys, you know, Brad Crowder and David McKay are out and protesting because they want to, you know, help America. At the same time, you have the FBI doing this. And it's even comes down to the FBI informant who, you know, was an activist who may have brought them all the way to the edge of the swimming pool and not pushed them in. Um, but uh, it's interesting how that seems to be the case and how in some ways it's ironic, in some ways it's really true, and how like kind of dark, murky territory it's gotten in when thinking about what is quote-unquote best in bettering this world for America or the sake of the world in general. Yeah, I mean, I think you really hit the nail on the head. We were really interested in getting a title that had multiple meanings. And every person, you know, every central character's stated mission was to better this world. And there are so many conflicting ways in which we can do that. Um, but you absolutely said it right. And, and you got our intent. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm curious, too. There were certain people that you got in the film. Uh, one of them... I, I, I was surprised because I don't think I've, gosh, I don't think I've ever seen it in a in a, a documentary of this kind of, you got a juror who was on the jury of, uh, of David McKay's first case, which ended in a hung jury. Now, I'm, I'm curious, like, how did you go about getting that, uh, you know, getting a hold of that juror and, and that process? And when I did a lot of criminal justice stories with Ofra Bikel, uh, because it's always so interesting to get insight into how jurors thought about it during the process of the trial, and it's often revelatory. So um, we were there, actually. We flew out right before the trial um, began, the federal trial of David McKay, and the first day is jury selection. And so as all the people are parading before the open courtroom, you pay attention to any little details you can get that can help you track down the jurors later, you know, whoever winds up on the jury. And so it was a, a, a bit of just piecing it together through various little bits of information. We were able to track down a couple of jurors. One uh, wasn't interested in talking, but one was. And we think that, you know, she provides some really valuable insight. Mm, yeah. Another person who brought a lot of insight who I was also interested in was, um, uh, uh, FBI veteran uh, James Weddick, I think is how you pronounce his last name, um, and how he was talking about how just since 9-11 certain things have changed and how the FBI has operated. Um, I think he described it as the eyes and, you know, the eyes and ears, but now it's the eyes, the ears, and the informant, which I thought was really interesting and kind of, you know, undergirded a lot of the kind of, you know, suspect nature of of this whole prosecution, even though there's no question what is going on with the two of them is is illegal. They're making Molotov cocktails, this and the other. 
but you know there's an intent there that the informant you know brings to the whole proceeding that kind of undergirds the whole prosecution yeah that so the quote is the eye before it was eyes and ears and now it's eyes ears and the informant's mouth right so mm -hmm. um he's making a claim that is somewhat narrower but pretty powerful to a broader claim that gets made about what's happened to fbi powers post 9 11 between the patriot act and a bunch of subsequent um changes in fbi policy there have been expanded powers uh, for FBI agents to um, investigate citizens whether or not there's any kind of cause. Um, so that has been something that's continued to expand under Obama. In fact, there was just a recent ruling along those lines. And this question of what is the appropriate behavior for an informant, is, there's a, is a lot of gray area. And what constitutes entrapment? is uh, something that's debated and you can get very, very different definitions that are understood in the public realm and in court. Uh, so, but I think that the, the narrower point is certainly true that there's been a shift in sort of what is perceived as reasonable in terms of the way informants act post 9-11. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I found, you know, not just with this case, but also in the footage that you all had from um, the demonstrations at the 2008 RNC that I was like, you know, 40 years later, but it, it, a lot of it felt very reminiscent to what you see with, you know, Chicago 68. And I, I'm really curious if you two saw that as you were making the film, as that, if that was something that kind of was brought home or if that was just something that, you know, it kind of, history kind of seemed to mark and really be similar in that respect? I think, you know, we did see a lot of parallels there. And one of the ones that was most striking was what the, and this is, it's, it's not totally central to our film, but it's, I think it's an important part of the broader story. The group that Brad and David originally went to go see um, at the bookstore where they met the informant when they were thinking about going to protest was called the RNC Welcoming Committee. And they were a group of uh, Twin Cities-based anarchist activists who were going around the country and trying to recruit people to come protest. And if I try to get the exact terminology for what they were charged with, I'm going to stumble. But it has something to do with crossing straight state lines and trying to recruit people to come to... Wasn't it conspiracy? Yeah, I was pretty sure it was conspiracy, conspiracy charges and had to do with um, with crossing straight state lines to try to generate some kind of illegal activity. And I can't do better than that. That was exactly what happened in Chicago in 68. And so there, the, the charges against the people who were traveling around and speaking to other activists um, were very similar. Um, and also the sort of massive investigation into activist circles was certainly very evocative of and reminiscent of the 60s. And COINTELPRO gets brought up a lot and people, a lot of people who see the film say, you know, it never went away in spite of the sort of church committee hearings of the early 70s and the scaling back of some of that kind of activity that people saw as really excessive on behalf of the government and the FBI um, that especially post 9-11, a lot was feeling very, very familiar. Um, uh, so uh, I'm, I'm curious too, what were some of the challenges 
Um, obviously, you both have um, experience either working in television and documentaries or in short form or this, that, and the other. What were some of the challenges to doing a feature-length film like this, like Better This World with, you know, all of this material and on this subject that is a touchy subject as well, too, and just, you know, like what were some of the, you know, bumps in the road as you went along? Well, you know, we really wanted to tell a story that had as many perspectives represented as possible. And that was really central um, to our mission. And we were successful in that we got the family members and the two young men accused of domestic terrorism, the FBI, the prosecutors, um, the jurors, you mentioned. But we didn't get um, the informant. And that, you know, that was definitely something we had hoped to do. Um, and I think the other sort of challenge was we set out to make a verite film, and we quickly realized that, you know, as I said earlier, a central part of the mystery of the film was the relationship between three central characters, and that had happened prior to us getting involved. And that's really one of the things that drove us to get so many different types of documents and types of media to tell that whole story. Um, but that pushed us to sort of think about how to approach weaving in so many different elements to create an interesting backstory that um, played very strongly with the narrative that was unfolding before us. And the, the what Kelly mentioned earlier about not getting the informant, I think likewise, ultimately people feel like we do have him, even though we never sat down with him ourselves because there was a fair amount of archival material and prior interviews and so forth and whether this is totally true i'm not sure but i love the concept that uh, there's a japanese character that means both crisis and opportunity and i think this it's often the case in filmmaking but it really was with this film that where we initially saw crisis there really ultimately became incredible opportunities for being creative than figuring out how to tell the story in more interesting ways. Mm, yeah, I, I'm curious too, uh, just in the style and the look of it, I, obviously a lot, a lot of it plays very much like a thriller. Um, and I'm curious if there are any like clear narrative or documentary inspirations or any specific filmmakers in when you look at that, or was it just mostly something that was kind of uh, more organic and just you felt like this is the way it's gonna go because this is where the material's leading? You know, I mean, Katie might answer this a little differently. I think that we both have watched a lot of documentaries and some stand out as films that we admire. In my opinion, our film evolved organically um, and probably, like all filmmakers, subconsciously you're drawing from various films that you've seen. Um, but I, there was no one or two or three films that we watched in the making of this film and thought, you know, let's model it after this or let's take it after that. Um, we really sort of had a unique set of media, I think, and so we had to really hammer it out in the editing room. That said, I think Kelly and I also have both been influenced by some documentary filmmakers who I think you could see in are the very broad sort of backdrop. And I, I always am... Uh, reluctant to name a few because there are always a few that get left out, but two that come to mind today are Brothers Keeper, which uh, by Berlinger and Sanofsky 
which I think did such an incredible job of humanizing um, the sort of people behind the headlines and telling a very uh, nuanced story that sort of um, brings, you know, brings the individual characters to life in a really different way, but also questions um, certain aspects of the legal system in a way that's not explicit, but by watching how the, the case unfolds um, raises a bunch of questions about what we think of as justice. Uh, similarly, Thin Blue Line, I think, did a terrific job along those lines. And also, um, you know, Errol Morris asked many different people in the case their perspectives and used some interesting recreation. So I think those two were um, uh, in my consciousness as we made this. But as Kelly said, there was no sort of clear single model. Yeah, I mean, that's the real impressive thing is, you know, uh, is, is the ability to, to be able to do that. And I think you both uh, really accomplished uh, creating an, a, a very interesting style that to me felt like no other documentary, even about the subject or, you know, even marking those that it was like, no, it seems pretty organic. Um, I'm curious, too, what was the response um to the film by some of the activists or the families or those involved in the case and law enforcement or whatnot? Because, I mean, obviously, with this being a, you know, a terror case and this, that, and the other, I mean, I'm sure it, you know, you're always trying to kind of, in some ways, walk on eggshells and be, you know, very careful that you're not going to, you know, uh, that you're not going to isolate too many people so that, you know, they'll not only end up talking, but also, you know, kind of be supportive of the film. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why we chose, ultimately chose um, South by Southwest as our place to premiere the film was because it was in Austin, and our central characters are from Texas, and so are their families, and so our premiere was um, quite nerve-wracking, both Brad and David's families were there. They both had taken an enormous leap of faith and opened themselves up to us, um, and we didn't, you know, we didn't, tar you know, we didn't make David or Brad perfect, you know, innocent characters, because they're not. We showed their complexities, we showed the full story in our estimate, and, um, you know, we didn't know how they would react. We felt that they would like the film. I don't think we could have predicted how meaningful it ultimately seemed to be to them, I mean, after the film Many of the family members were crying. They came up and hugged us. Um, David's family and Brad's family were at odds with one another prior to seeing the film. And I think the film really helped them understand the other family's um, journey and realizing how much they had gone through that was similar. And even within families, I mean, David had a little sister who was really furious with him for what he had done. And when she saw the movie, it, it healed part of her pain, and it made her understand and see her brother in a more complex light. That, you know, she really felt that it sort of enabled her to be close with her brother again. Yeah, well, that's fascinating. I, that's that's amazing. I mean, you could tell that, you know, there's a, there's a tension there when, uh, you know, uh, you get maybe... Uh, David's father on the phone and talking and, you know, interactions with that. But I, I, that's pretty fascinating that that, uh, that that film in some ways brought together those families. That's pretty amazing. Um, 
Now, I'm, I'm curious, too, um, you know, obviously, I think it's, uh, you know, it's been doing quite well on the festival circuit and whatnot. Um, do you, how do you, to anticipate, you know, with the film and in response to the general public, you know, it's going to play on PBS. And I know uh, that, you know, just by the very nature of the story, it's probably going to cause a bit of talk, you know, a bit of talk and kind of debate around the film, especially in looking at those two central characters and, and, and their, you know, and the illegality of their actions. So I'm curious, like, you know, are, are there any, are, when you, when you make a film like this, are you ever worried about those things or you just go forward and just deal with it when it happens? I think we, it's important to us that it does create some, uh, some debate and discussion and some strong feelings on both sides. I think if, uh, if it didn't, I don't think it would be as likely to stick in the public consciousness. And we have already seen a lot of that sort of heated, but I'd say often more light than heat kind of discussions after the film plays at festivals. And so we hope that that'll just be happening on a broader scale um and i think it, it's fine to have people feel strong feelings about the film we're used to that at this point and um and we're looking at airing five days before the 10th anniversary of 9-11 we lobbied for that spot on pov because we think it's, an, it's sort of an obvious time for national reflection on where we've been and where we are um, since 9-11 in terms of um how we have tensions between our rights and uh, security uh, needs and so forth. And so it just, we wanted to insert this film without making too strong a claim one way or the other, just to insert this sort of nuanced story into the public consciousness and hopefully, you know, make it a part of that broader discussion and, and have people challenge their beliefs on all sides in some ways. Mm. Yeah, do you, I mean, is there a hope in some ways that this will maybe start a national conversation to maybe deal with these issues? And especially, I mean, I know that, you know, I mean, there are a lot of First and Fourth Amendment questions or whatnot post 9-11 that kind of in some ways, at least in the mainstream media after a while, have just kind of lost, you know, kind of, uh, you know, been buried under other things and other whatnot. I mean, is is that your hope in some ways to kind of, open up that conversation and maybe, you know, lead to some whatever. Not that necessarily this film is, you know, advocacy, but, you know, that hopefully something would spring from the film. Well, you know, there's been a national pattern of domestic terrorism cases in which entrapment is the defense. Um, and we do hope that our story, and I think it has been, you know, in a lot of communities, part of the larger conversation around, you know, as Katie said earlier, sort of the tensions between our civil liberties and our safety, um, allowing people to start thinking a little more deeply about the, like trying to figure out what the full picture is behind the headlines and really examine the concept of entrapment in the national post 9-11 landscape. And we also see the, the story as a good opportunity for people to sort of get to know the justice system in an interesting, personal way. And there are lots of sort of weirdnesses, as I see it anyway, about the, the American criminal justice system that people are not familiar with that are just 
you know, in the workaday world of the federal justice system, people know that they're 95% plus uh, defendants take pleas and um, almost never win if they go to trial. It's easily a 90% plus conviction rate that sentences in the United States are five to 12 times as long as other industrialized countries for comparable crimes. But those stats aren't widely known. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a good opportunity to get hooked into characters and a good narrative to come to a, a deeper understanding of how the justice system operates and to question whether, you know, that's the justice system we want. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's extremely results-based kind of law and order. And I mean, I, as the two of you spending so much time making this film and dealing with um, people, you know, the FBI and whatnot, I mean, do you think that there is any potential anytime soon that even within, say, the mechanisms of the FBI, that this kind of, you know, that this kind of, like, elevated, you know, results-based, you know, 90% conviction rate, this, that, and the other, that some of this is going to turn, that maybe there's going to be a backlash? You know, I mean, I, I ask only because you two have spent all this time or whatnot, and, you know, obviously I would think would, you know, have an inside track on some of those things. I'd say that there is there is a sort of critical mass of stories happening right now. I think it's not a surprise that it's around the 10th anniversary of 9-11. A lot of big magazines and television shows and newspapers are doing sort of reflections on post 9-11 domestic security apparatus. And there's a lot of people right now looking at so the growth of surveillance culture and um, you know the growth of law enforcement and the amount of resources we're putting into all of that post 9-11, but more specifically at cases like this one. But generally, they're dealing with um, Muslim Americans uh, and Muslim subculture within the United States, which most of the domestic terrorism cases are. There are also other targeted groups like you know activists, um, mainly yeah. left. Yeah, animal and environmental activists, um, people on activists on the left and protesters. Um, and I think that conversation is really happening. I'm, I've been seeing a lot of articles and a lot of stories lately. And I think there is a sort of a, a rising public consciousness about to what degree these terrorism cases are trumped up or generated by the government um, or are happening you know, sort of organically and being caught. That's a big, uh, a big question right now in the news. Mm. Now, uh, I'm curious too, um, have you two worked together in a film or is this your first time collaborating? This is our first time collaborating. Mm. Any plans for possibly working again together on anything in the future? We're working on Better This World too. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. Yeah, we're going to work on more films together for sure. Oh, great. Yeah. Well, I think it's a, a, you two are an amazing pair and created a really special film that I, I really do hope opens that conversation and is, you know, kind of helps foster, you know, more understanding about that or whatnot. And uh, I would definitely say to uh, all those listening now that um, if you are in New York or Los Angeles to go to DocuWeeks and go support or whatnot, it is true. It's going to play at POV later this fall, but you know, I, I definitely would say go and support, you know, independent documentary filmmakers, you know, especially this film. It's, uh, it's well worth it. And thank you so much for your time.
Thank you. Thank you very much. Hello, everybody who is uh, listening right now to Chronicle Cast, as well as um, readers of the Alternative Chronicle. I just want to leave this little last note um, for Better This World that the filmmakers requested, um, as well as just to give you information. If you are in Los Angeles, um, starting Friday, August 26th, um, Better This World is going to be playing at DocuWeeks at the Lemley Sunset Five. Um, and the film is playing at different playtimes uh, play uh, um, at uh, the Lemley Sunset Five, and you can find those in specific at documentary.org slash DocuWeeks 2011. But I'm just going to put in there just the days and times if you're listening now so that you can also know and write them down as well on friday the 26th it's going to be playing at the lemley sunset five and it's going to be playing at 5 30 there um on saturday it's going to be playing at 1 50 on august 27th on sunday it's playing at 3 40 at uh on august 28th sunday um on monday august 29th it is playing at 5.30 p.m. Uh, Tuesday, August 30th, it is playing at 1.50 p.m. Wednesday, August 31st, is playing at 3.40 p.m. And Thursday, its last day, September 1st, it's playing 5.30 on Thursday, September 1st. So um, if you did not catch those all or could not write them all down at once, go to documentary dot org slash docuweeks 2011 and look for better this world and there's also plenty of other things whatever go support docuweeks and uh go see a lot of um really interesting uh independent documentary films all right guys thanks and thanks for listening <laughs>